This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Natasha Mitchell with Real Wild Child here on Science Friction, staggering stories of children and science, stories I've collected over the years about kids whose lives intersect with science in surprising, sometimes delightful, sometimes shocking ways. But today it's all about the unmitigated delight. When I caught up with Ty in 2019, he was 12, science obsessed and host of the cult podcast, Ty Asks Why. It all starts with the question, you know, it's Pretty much as simple as the name is. That's why the name such a great part. Ty Asks Why. Ty Asks Why. I'm Ty and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you just really want to get answered. Which one's cooler? Zero or infinity? How do we fix climate change? Should we trust our gut? What happens after we die? Why do we dream? And what is love? When Ty Poole was 11, his new science podcast, Ty Asks Why, took off and then a TV show was on the cards too. Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC, has published four seasons of Ty Asks Why and I wanted to turn the tables and ask Ty Why about life, about science, about pretty much everything really. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. On a scale of zero to infinity, how surreal does it feel to have so much wonderful recognition for this podcast of yours. Infinity and one. It's hard to think that, you know, I'm just, just, I'm literally just this dude. And in the past two years, I've been like this dude, except on the internet. A lot of the people I interview are like big hot shot people. I'm like, well, just a kid. Snuck it, snuck past the guards, put on some headphones, illegally booked uh, studio and boom, <laughs> let's talk. You know? Uh, yeah, but that's what makes your podcast so utterly wonderful. I mean, thinking about, you know, vast and abstract concepts as you do, you, you've loved maths from way, way back. You're 12 now, but maths came to you, I mean, almost as your first language is how you describe it. Tell us about that, that feeling, that sort of innate connection for you with, with the world of numbers. Well, math is just logic but a little bit more complex. You just have these building blocks and these things and they interact with each other in a very specific way. And that's it. So you got to get this other thing and this other thing. You smoosh them together, you see how that works and it's always consistent. It's like a perfect universe. I want you to try to imagine a box of nothing. You can't really, write Because a box would be containing something. What if it's containing something that it's not containing nothing? Okay, now try to imagine a box of infinity. Like everything. And you also can't really. Because it just kind of goes on and on. And you can't contain it if it keeps going, right? What's up with that? A lot of people find math hard, but it always just kind of clicked for me. I always just understood because it's just, 
You know, it's just these patterns. Mm. I love the way you describe maths as both messy and elegant as well. You know, it's almost as if early on in our lives, a lot of us don't see those patterns, the patterns that maths helps us describe about the world. It's, it is a language, isn't it? It's kind of a literacy. Mm-hmm. And it's just a way of conveying ideas, but not necessarily in the traditional sense that we think. This is Tony Del Genio, and I am a scientist for NASA. NASA! Freaking NASA! I do research on Earth's climate and how the Earth's climate is changing because of the stuff that people are putting into the atmosphere. And I do research on other planets uh, in the solar system. I've been involved in a few NASA space missions uh, to other planets. Awesome. So you're in junior high school this year, and I'm wondering, outside of school now, you're getting to talk to leading scientists from all over the world, from NASA, in all sorts of intricate detail about their work. They give you their time, these one-on-one extraordinary conversations, and then you have to rock up at school and fit into the whole kind of school curriculum and whatever it requires you to learn. Is that a difficult adjustment for you, those contrasts? Well, it's kind of like, you know, once you go, like, if you were to fly business class once, every other time you fly economy, it's probably going to feel like really small and stuff. Of course, I've never flown business, unfortunately, but it's a shock, you know, because I get that schools can't afford to do one-on-one tasks why tutoring like I did. And I'm super grateful and thankful for the opportunity that I've been given. But yeah, it is it is a lot a bit of a shock, you know. You think you you think you're learning science and then you go out and you ask and you're like, well this is learning science. So tell us about that contrast because I found school oppressive at times, probably because I moved a lot. But you know, I was a curious kid, I had a great passion for learning and I did not feel that at school. Yes. Like, let's put it this way. If you were to go in your computer and you're like, hold on, how do magnets work? And you type it up, you're going to get an answer. You're going to be like, wow, this is actually really cool. You click on the next link and the next link, and suddenly you're like a PhD in electromagnetism. (laughs) But if you just got taught in school and you're like, well, I want to go to art class, can we leave? It's not going to be fun because the main difference is just that school, it's driven just by the facts, just by the knowledge, you know? You're being taught this so you can know what it is and you can understand. But just what I found from Y that was so much better is that I was learning science, but it was driven by curiosity. Mm. What school does, it doesn't cater to the fact that you're curious about something. It just gives you that information, whether or not it's what you want to hear what you don't want to hear but would end up liking or you just don't want to hear at all, it just gives you the information and it like kind of kills curiosity. Don't you reckon that's a complete and utter tragedy of modern education though? That one statement that you make, that school kills curiosity. I mean, what a disastrous situation that we found ourselves in if that's the, the reality of education today. Unfortunately, it's not great. You know, we're just kind of taught in the style of the industrial age. You learn how to do something, you grow up, you do it, you die. You don't do it, you get punished. You do do it, you get to work some more, and then eventually you die. And I, that's not really. But just, yeah, school curriculum, just it can be adjusted because it just it's hard trying to feed to a mass, but mm. there are just ways that you can approach it that is less just like 
it feels like a factory and you're just everyone's just being like putting on like a knob or a screw at a time and then you're just done you know there's just different ways that you can approach it curriculum's just supposed to teach to a mass and because curiosity creates like side paths and just makes it non-universal that's how curiosity works you're curious about something and it's not like there's a lack of information it's just you want to know more so what they do is they try to oppress curiosity so they can just tell everybody this stuff. So you're like, well, this sucks. But they just, they can't be scared to just let that curiosity expand. Like, I get it. You might not be able to one-on-one tutor people all the time, but you just need to let that curiosity, you do need to let it just rise up so you can teach them something. But if they're curious, they'll be happy, engaged, and they'll just go home and they'll just look it up after. It's the spark that lights the fire. I do wonder what your relationship with your science teacher is like at school. Yeah, we're we're best friends. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, lots of people fantasise about getting an award-winning cult podcast up and, and running, and you had one by age 11. But I really love the way you call yourself unashamedly a scientist because so many people feel remote from science. You know, science is what scientists do. I don't want to seem cocky. I'm not like, I have this high-end intellectual, the smartest. <laughs> but, you know, I like to think of myself as a scientist because I look to learn science and I discover things about the field and in my own way by asking these questions contribute by adding this new perspective I'm learning and using science to discover things yeah I mean there are lots of different tools that people use to ask questions about the world religion philosophy meditation and yoga is another way what do you think is distinct about science as a way of interpreting the world? Well, the thing is, except for yoga, we will try to do that season three if we get one. I have used all of these different methods because, you know, science is great and I'm a scientist and all, but science doesn't always have the answers. And if science does have the answers, we just haven't figured it out yet. It's a pretty big universe and a lot of things to learn about. So, you know, if I can't find the answers through science, I'll look at religion or philosophy or anything, you know? I'm just curious and I'm looking for the best, most suitable answer. I feel like science and religion, they're like actually very similar because they're just, they're ways to answer things and they may have different connotations around them, but they're both just ways where you're like, well, I'm curious, I'm looking for guidance, help me, God or alien overlord, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the alien overlord. In fact, you identify as, as an atheist. And, and yet, in a, that beautiful episode that you and your team made after you experienced terrible grief from your grandfather dying, you were prompted to ask the question, what happens after we die? And you didn't think that science would necessarily provide the answers. Why not? Well, science is great, you know, and science is how I understand the world. Science is science. Science can only do so much. And when it can't do something, bring in the other viewpoints and ideas. I want to talk about death. It's a downer, I I know, but it's just, I've kind of been curious about it. About two years ago, my, my grandpa died. 
I miss him a lot. My grandmother tells me that in the Vietnamese tradition, after a person dies, their soul is just kind of disoriented, you know, like, wait, what's going on? For exactly 49 days? But, like, what happens after the 49 days? Where does he go? I just feel just procedures we have and the basic concepts of science being like, well, you stick some things in the brain, you zap them, you see if it responds. And if they're dead, their brain doesn't work, right? So there's like spiritual stuff and spiritual stuff tends to collide with science. Science doesn't like that for some reason. Now, when we were born, climate change is already kind of a big thing. And that's because our parents and just people of the previous generation started building the factories and releasing greenhouse gases into the air. Like, does that kind of tick you off that they're kind of just like, I'm just gonna leave you this like dying planet. Does that like annoy you at all? I think it kind of does. These are my friends. I just wanted to ask them if they're also super terrified about climate change. I mean, it's up to us for some reason to fix our planet and just to fix what all of our ancestors have wrought upon us. Okay, so yeah, we're on the same page. It just feels like we're all just kind of like stuck on this sinking boat. And it's just the planet's heating up with no way to stop it. Maybe we need to just like travel to Mars or something. Describe that feeling for us, that kind of burden that you and your friends live with. Is it a burden or, or do you see a sort of different path that you all might take to solving the problem of human-induced climate change? I feel like, in a way, climate change, for me at least, is like, let's say you were in the supermarket. Like, your dad wants to go to the supermarket and he puts you in the car, right? And you're not supposed to leave people in locked cars and that stuff. But let's just say that happens, right? And, you know, like, you, you, you're you not, like, a baby. So you're like, and you're like, well, it's slowly getting hotter, right? Let's just say that you get a call from your dad and your dad's like, there was this massive, like, there was this someone, like, trying to stole it so the store's on lockdown. It's going to be, like, four hours. It's that feeling where you're like, well, if we don't fix this, it's going to get hotter and hotter and more uncomfortable. And it's just... It's just this bad feeling that it just it's just going to keep getting worse. And then you're like, oh, my God, it's going to get, oh, my, it's hotter. It's, you know, it's that kind of really panicky the feeling. The panic because, factor. Yeah, exactly. The more mm. you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to melt, the more you're like, well, more time has passed. I'm going to melt faster. So do you think... It closes in. It closes in. And then there's the question of how much power do you have to open the window and let the hot air out? Yeah. And, you know, eventually, eventually once you're in that car for long enough and you're like, oh, my God, like it's like you're just really uncomfortable and annoyed. You're like, well, why did my dad open a window? And, you know, you're thinking like, why did they put this? Why are they making me cook? I, I didn't do anything wrong. And you squirm in your thing in the seatbelt. And eventually you just you just melt. You melt. And unfortunately, I like humanity. I don't want it to melt. But if we don't fix climate change, we could melting could be a serious problem. So who do you think of as they? Who are the they that are responsible? Unfortunately, it's us, which means it's it's everybody. 
we don't really do anything. So the only people that care are the people that are panicked. They're like, hold on. When the generation before us dies, how are they supposed to fix what they've done to our planet? And then you just kind of freak out. But everyone else is like, you know what? It's fine. I'm just going to the grocery store. I'm going to use my car. It's a tiny bit. It's a tiny bit of emission. And everyone in the world does that. And it's a whole bunch of emission and we melt. Yeah. Well, actually, when you were six or so, you came up with an idea for solving climate change that you wanted to share with NASA at the time. And in fact, as part of Ty Asks Why, your podcast, you have got to share that with a NASA climate scientist. What was the idea? And has it evolved? Well, originally, I just kind of thought of it as, you know, we have ways of turning heat into power, right? You know, with maybe like the steam engine or all that stuff. But I just thought, what if we made these like It's kind of like a solar panel, except it's a heat panel, right? So it's not necessarily exactly solar radiation, but it just gets that. And it turns it into power, and it powers this these massive, like, cell phone tower-sized AC units. It's like, well, you take the heat, and it makes it cold. And to make sure we don't, like, freeze and make another ice age, when it gets too cold, there won't be enough heat to make any power. So it, like, will balance itself out and everything will be great. So basically capturing the excess heat uh, that's generated through global warming and then and converting it to energy. Yeah, and using that energy to create the heat button reverse so the two cancel each other out. Do you think it's viable? Well, we figured out in that episode that it's not entirely <laughs> scientifically accurate. <laughs> you were six when you came up with it. <laughs> I was I was six. I didn't understand how an AC unit worked. I didn't know that like if when it when it was making cold, it was putting out hot. So, so I always it's thought, generating like, you know, heat. It turns hot into cold. Yeah. I mean, people are coming up with all sorts of possible geoengineering solutions to climate change because it seems like we're pretty useless at reducing carbon emissions as a species. So, you know, people are thinking of spraying sulphate particles up into the stratosphere as a kind of planetary umbrella or sunshade or putting mirrors up in space to deflect sunlight. So it's not entirely implausible, this kind of scale of engineering solution. Have you come up with other ideas since you were six? Well, I thought thought of one when I was eight. And it's the exact same type of thing. It's also, like, it was more when I understood it more. Like, heat is these little particles, and they're bouncing around really quickly, right? And heat is, like, making them bounce faster. So if something's hot, the particles are bouncing quickly. So if we take that energy from the particles, and they chill out, and it becomes cold, if we get energy from the atmosphere, and we turn it into, like, a Death Star, and just, like, shoot it into space, we'd be cold again. And now you're well, talking. That would be great. I love it. And the I best love thing it. is that this would also be a defense against aliens, right? If aliens come, we're like, well, we have a Death Star. Pew. <laughs> Two birds we with cool one the stone. Down, keep us safe. Exactly. Do you think, though, your generation will take a different approach to fixing climate change to previous generations? Well, that's the thing. I don't mean to have any disrespect on your generation. Go for it. Let it rip. The next generation, the, the, the generation before us isn't really doing anything and they're all going to die. They're going to put it in our hands. By the time that's there, we're super screwed. And we're like, well, we have to find a solution. And we can't just be like, well, we're going to hand it off to the next generation because we'll be melted by then. But what if you do just hand it off? I mean, what's going to change? 
We already know what the reality is and we can't change our social systems to accommodate it. I don't know. Like, honestly, just by the rate that it's expanding and it's getting worse, Mm. especially with the ways that we're creating, like, we have more efficient ways of mass producing food. And they say it's more efficient, but it's more efficient because it makes more carbon dioxide and it kills our planet more. So, honestly, we might not be able to hand it off. Like, we just, we might, like... It seems like it could be the we could be the last line. It could be the end of the line for us if we don't fix it. And then our cockroach overlords will take over from us, which might not be such a bad thing. Well, that's the thing. We don't. Well, I don't know if it if it's global warming. It might not be cockroaches, but if it's nuclear warfare because of global warming, if global warming causes like very small percentages of the land to be populated and there's like these like big wars over like hey our water's evaporating hey us too screw you we want to drink it screw you and then they throw bombs at each other then that's when the cockroaches they rise yes bring on the cockroaches i say now, your new season of Ty Asks Why lands this week. Big news, I think, this past month is that Ty Asks Why is now also being developed into a TV show. So I'm wondering whether you're going to have to clone yourself. I've always, I've always wanted to clone myself, so it's not necessarily I have to. I think it's more of I want to. Yeah, what would your relationship to your clone be like? I've often wondered about that. Well, I can't tell you where because then people would steal it. Through the years, I've made this very long letter to myself, and it's in my room, and it is, in case you are cloned to, and I have two separate for the original and the clone, on how to deal with each other. And it's a way to reset your mindset so the two of you can work in harmony, you know, because there's always that Calvin and Hobbes comic where they get pretty chaotic. So... I've made sure I made some ground rules for myself. And besides, you know, like if you don't do it right, having a clone wouldn't be helpful. It'd be the opposite, you know? Yeah, because imagine if you hated your clone. Oh, my God, imagine that. That would be awful. Or it'd always be like, well, it's your turn to do the dishes. It's like, well, it's your turn. But And that's why I try to make some ground rules where, like, we'd have to figure out a system and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, it would kind of suck if you hated yourself. That's right. You stared into your own eyes and said, I think you are evil. I mean, it is sort of the conundrum that we face with the future of artificial intelligence, isn't it? So if we create artificial intelligences that rival our own intelligence, even though they are of our own making, how will we relate to them? They could rise up and they would take over. They'd be, they'd be too smart. They'd have an advantage that humans don't have. But also, there's only enough room in this house for the one of us. That's Bang. right. Out with you, flesh and blood. You are just but a biology. Imagine that. Imagine if it's like, you know, you know how there's like, you can like print your face in a mug or something. Or like Mm-mm. imagine just like print your face in a robot. Yeah, wacky. Yeah, I don't know. I they would be curious, though. I have a feeling I'd prefer the cockroach overlords to the artificial intelligence overlords somehow. That'd be cool. And it'd also be kind of funny, because imagine, like, imagine if these cockroaches got, like, a low-quality motel and they just see, like, a little baby skeleton. It's like, ah, a baby! <laughs> Ty Poole, thank you so much for joining me on Science Friction this week. It's been wonderful having you as a guest. You're very welcome. I'm super glad to be here. And honestly, I think I should be thanking you. 
And since we recorded that conversation together, Ty's podcast has published two more seasons. And you can keep listening to Real Wild Child here on Science Friction for a couple more episodes. Next, I'm bringing you a story I will never forget, Robbie and the DNA Detectives. The Americans were very confident that they'd get a result. Failure wasn't an option. They believed we'd get an answer. But the Westmead team first had to get uncontaminated samples from Robbie's brain from Sydney all the way to San Francisco intact. I remember they told us we need to send them a piece of brain that's about the size of the eraser on the end of your pencil. A tiny sample, but a very big deal because it involves full-blown brain surgery and highly sterile procedures, but they managed it. Uh, FedEx, (laughs) came by FedEx. Now the race was on to work out what wasn't human inside Robbie's brain and cerebrospinal fluid. Robbie and the DNA Detectives, a story not to be missed. And you can catch me now on the Big Ideas podcast from ABCRN. I'm the new host, bringing you the best of forums and talks from events and festivals across Australia and the world. And the ideas are big. You can follow Big Ideas on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Bye from me and... Thank you for listening to Science Friction. I'm Ty Poole and make sure to check out my podcast, Ty Asks Why. You get it anywhere you get podcasts and it's just about a kid asking questions. It's more exciting than it sounds. So keep asking why, guys, and thank you so much. Woo! You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.